I was discouraged when no answer came. See, I'd prayed for years and I still saw no change. I was ready to give up thinking what could I do. But when I prayed that last time, God's power broke through. And prayer is just as big as God is. Prayer is just as strong as God is strong. Prayer can reach as far as God can reach. Don't ever give up. Just pray. Just pray. Don't ever give up. Just pray. We have been given a means to the throne of the God who potential is yet to be known. There is no limit as to what God can do. So just keep on praying. He's listening to you. And prayer is just as big as God is. Prayer is just as strong as God is strong, prayer can reach as far as God can reach. Don't ever give up, just pray, just pray. Don't ever give up, just pray. And prayer is just as big as God is. Prayer is just as strong as God is strong. Prayer can reach as far as God can reach. Don't ever give up. Just pray, just pray. Don't ever give up. Just pray. Well, amen. Just pray, right? That's really the key. We probably talk a lot more about it than we do it, don't we? And boy, I'll tell you what, it is a key. It's a tremendous, powerful tool that God's given to us. It unlocks heaven, and boy, we, uh, we need to utilize that tool more often. I'm sure all of us could probably do that more often. I know I could. Turn to Amos. Yeah, that's right, Amos. Good luck. Amos chapter 7, Amos chapter 7, or Amos, however you can understand it, there's no right or wrong anymore, whatever you think is all that matters, right, isn't that how it is today in our world it seems like, well anyway, I used to, I, I learned it was Amos, now I don't know, it could be something else, who knows, the Lord probably knows better than me, I don't know. So one day he'll let me know, maybe. But uh, that sounds pretty good for now. Chapter 7. 
We're going to begin reading in verse 10. We're going to read through verse 17. Amos chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go, flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and prophesy there. But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. <clears throat> then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. But I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. The Lord took me as I followed the flock. The Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. Now therefore, Hear thou the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, Prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Thy wife shall be a harlot in the city, and thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land, and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. Wow, that sounds like an interesting message, doesn't it? That's, that's a hard message right there. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll give you a little background, and we'll move right along. Father, we need you. Thank you again for your word, and Lord, uh, boy, this, that's a rough message to have to deliver. Yet, Lord, uh, <clears throat> we thank you for the privilege to serve you and to speak on your behalf. <clears throat> we think about uh, the um, early Christians who shared your, uh, the resurrected Christ and just the awful price they paid and yet, Lord, we thank you for the privilege to be your children and to, Father, have your word and to be indwelt by your spirit. Uh, bless us tonight. May you, again, as was mentioned earlier, fill me with your Holy Ghost. And may I truly say those things which bring glory to you and honor. May I say nothing that would detract or take away from you. Lord, be glorified in this place. May every listening ear hear you. And Lord, may they hear with spiritual ears, and may the truth of the word be driven deep into our hearts. We need you tonight. Encourage us, we pray. May this message truly instruct us and ultimately inspire us to be better for you. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. So Amos was from the city of Tekoa. It was located approximately 12 miles south of Jerusalem, and that puts Bethlehem about halfway between Tekoa and Jerusalem. Now, Amos was a shepherd. He was a farmer of sycamore fruit, which is a fruit somewhat like figs, if you will. It's commonly eaten by the poor. Now, <clears throat> Amos had directed this prophecy primarily to Israel. The kingdom had been divided, as uh, you probably recall, and now there is Israel and there is Judah. Judah reigned, uh, was reigned over by Rehoboam, and we had Israel that's reigned over by Jeroboam. And so one of our characters is Jeroboam. He is the king of Israel. And Amos would prophesy the death of Jeroboam, king of Israel, and he would also ultimately 
share how they would go into captivity. And all of this is a direct result of their sin and their rebellion against God. Now Amaziah the priest, he insists that Amos, well, prophesy in Judah. We're really not pleased with the message you have for us here in Israel. You sound more like one of those Judah prophets. Why don't you go to Judah and maybe you can prophesy there, but you stay out of our business and you stay out of our city. We don't appreciate your message, your attitude, or your outlook. You've got nothing positive to say about us, the people, and our king. So you just leave us alone. You go worry about Judah. But Amos would tell Amaziah something very important. Amos would basically say, you know what? This wasn't my idea. I didn't decide one day to be a prophet. I didn't decide to show up here in Israel and share this horrible message with you about your king and about your nation. It was not my idea. It was God's idea. It's all God's doing. You want to blame somebody, don't blame me, blame God. He called me to prophesy to Israel. And God's the one who gave me this message for you. I mean, you can be upset with me if you like, but I didn't choose to come here. I didn't choose the message. I didn't choose how I was going to display it or share it. No, I just did in, in obedience what God told me to do. Amos wasn't anyone special. He was a shepherd. He was a farmer. He had a very common upbringing, and he would have lived in obscurity if it hadn't been for God calling him to prophesy to Israel. They had walked around town and somebody had said, hey, you hear about Amos? They said, Amos who? What are you talking about? Who's Amos? I mean, all I know is that he makes pretty good cookies. You got famous Amoses? Okay. All right, so half of you are asleep already. But nonetheless... <laughs> we don't know any Amos. Amos would have lived in obscurity if it wasn't for God calling him. But you know, that's how God works most often. He doesn't call the big shots, he calls the little shots. Look if you would in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Oh, there's times when God will use somebody that is extremely talented or has a lot of ability or might have even a lot of money or, or prestige or power, and there's no doubt God can and has done that, but most of the time, God uses simple people, ordinary people. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. That one's a little easier to find. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. So obviously that last little phrase really kind of 
expresses and explains why God doesn't always use the most popular or the most uh, uh, the, the most the richest or the handsomest, unlike me for a change. I mean, it's it's unusual. Okay, all right, just checking to make sure you're awake and alive. But the truth is, is that he normally doesn't do that. Why? Why doesn't God choose to use those who have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, those who have seemed to accomplish something in the flesh, those that are often looked upon as being the successful and the most uh, uh, amazing people in our world? Well, that no man's flesh should glory in his presence. He, he doesn't want to share the glory. See, mankind has a tendency to say, you know what, that's why... You're good at what you do because you have abilities. You have a real gift of gab. You've got the, you've been, you know, you grew up uh, uh, under the best teaching and the best learning and you've had all the privileges that you could possibly have. Man, I'll tell you what, if I had all that, I too could have been successful in this ministry or reaching people or doing the work of God. And God says, now, you know what? I'm going to use the simple. I'm going to use the commoner because I want to make sure that when it's all said and done, I get the glory. Now again, there are humble people who God has, who, who have been used or have made a way in life maybe before they were saved or possibly even while they've been saved and God will use them mightily because they're humble and they have some characteristics and qualities that are necessary. But a lot of times, most of the time, he uses common people. People like me, people like you. See, he didn't use Moses as a prince in Egypt, but he waited till he was a nobody on the backside of a desert. You know, Jesus didn't come a king, but was born in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. God didn't anoint Eliab, who looked like a king. Instead, he chose David, who was found keeping watch over his father's flock. Again, Jesus didn't call the educated, the well-to-do, or the social elite for the most part but instead he called common fishermen. So what in the world did all these people have in common? I mean, God doesn't necessarily use the most talented, at least from the world's perspective. He doesn't necessarily use the one who has the greatest IQ. So what do these common people that God uses have in common? that make them usable in the hand of God. And that's what I want to share tonight. Number one, their attitude. Their attitude was humility, humble. See, those that God uses are humble. You say, boy, you aren't. Listen to you, man. You're good looking. You got money. You got... And none of that's true. But anyway... He uses the humble. We can't forget that our greatest example of humility was none other than Jesus Christ himself. We see that in Mark chapter 10, verse 43. The Bible says in Mark 10, 43, But so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever you shall be chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. What a humble spirit. D.L. Moody was the most famous evangelist in the world in the late 1800s. 
I'm sure you've heard of him. I know I have. And people came from all around the world to hear this man preach and to attend his Bible conferences. And, and his Bible conferences took place in what was called Northfield, Massachusetts. One year, a very large group of pastors from Europe made their way to the United States and they became attendees in that particular conference. They were all given rooms in the dormitory of the Bible school and as was customary in, in Europe, the men put their shoes outside the door of their room and they expected them to be cleaned and polished by the servants uh, during the night. That was customary in uh, their country. And of course, there were no servants in the American dorm. But D.L. Moody was walking through the halls and he was praying for his guests and he saw those shoes and he realized what had happened. And he mentioned the problem to a few of his students, but none of them offered to help. And so without another word, the evangelist, D.L. Moody, gathered up the shoes, took them back to his own room, and he began to clean and polish those shoes. Each pair, one by one, Moody didn't tell anybody what he had done. But a particular friend of his kind of interrupted him in the middle of the shining of the shoes and was, what are you doing, D.L.? And D.L. said, I'm just shining these shoes for the delegates from Europe. He said, well, I'll help you. And he began to help him finish the task. And later, that's the man who told the story about what happened. But see, despite all the praise and despite all the faint that D.L. Moody experienced as a result of the many blessings of God in his life and in his ministry, Moody remained a very humble man. You've got to wonder if the blessings on his life and ministry were really a result of his humble spirit. James chapter 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, unto the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. A attitude of humility. Who's God going to use? What makes these commoners an effective tool in the hand of the master. An attitude of humility. Humbleness. Number two, their actions. You say, well, what are those? Obedience. Their actions. Oh, yes, indeed, their attitude, humility, but also their actions, obedience. You're going to look long and hard to find a man or a woman who God will use that isn't obedient. If somebody says, I'm not going to obey God, I don't know that God's going to use them that awfully much. If he does use them, it won't be in the way that they would like him to use them. Roger Stahlbeck, who led the Dallas Cowboys to the Super Bowl victory in 1971, he admitted that his position as a quarterback who didn't call his own signals was a source of trial for him. It just bothered the life out of him. I mean, Coach Landry would send in every single play. 
He told Roger when to pass. He told him when to run. Only in emergency situations was Roger Stallback, the great quarterback, permitted to call the play. Change the play, even, for that matter. Even though Roger Stallback considered Coach Landry to have a genius mind when it came to football strategy and football thinking, pride in his heart said he should be able to run his own team. I mean, I'm not some schoolboy anymore. I'm a professional football player, and I'm one of the best quarterbacks in the entire NFL. Roger had a decision to make. Would he allow pride to rule his life and ignore his coach, making himself the star? Oh, yeah, I called that play. Yeah, I, I'm the one who saw that defense. And, and uh, uh, yeah, I set forth a strategy after the third quarter. And, uh, yeah, okay. Or would he listen to the coach and do what, he was, what the coach wanted? Stallback later said this, quote, I faced up to the issue of obedience. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. You know, today it seems that obedience is a bad word. It's a bad word almost. See, when someone suggests we obey authority or those in charge... One almost immediately thinks about the possible abuses that come when folks submit their will to others. Oh, submit to someone's authority? Well, they could abuse that authority and then they would take advantage of me. That's the mentality that has been permeated and put out in our culture, our society. It seems that it's per pervaded into the church. It's everywhere today. Sadly, Satan has gotten society to focus on the abuses and thus demonize the biblical principle itself. For example, wives, submit to your husband. Well, to do that, to submit, is to give up who I am and to invite abuse. I can't trust what my husband will do with that kind of power and authority. If I would submit to him, man, he would rule me like I was one of the dogs or something. He'd treat me horribly, or I can't take the chance at least. Children, obey your parents. Well, to obey my parents to, is somewhat degrading, really. I mean, it attacks my personal autonomy and freedom. I'm a human being. I'm not stupid. I know what's best for me. I can't give somebody that kind of authority. I mean, you tell me what you want me to do. If I agree with you, I'll do it. But if I don't, ain't nobody telling me what to do because I, I'm my own person. And that's okay. I, I, I got to learn this. I can't submit because you just may abuse your authority over me. And church is the same way. You know, most people are excited when they hear this phrase that kind of seems to be popping up all over the place when it comes to pastor's role in the church, when they say things like servant leader. And we just read a passage that said, the greatest among you will be servant of all. I understand that. But wait a second, that phrase servant leadership and servant leader that people are so excited about, they seem to forget the latter part of it. They like the servant part, they don't like the leadership part. Oh, I know I'm supposed to have an evangelist in right now. 
right? You have the evangelist in to say the things that we don't want to hear, right? But no, that's not how it should be. Pastors should be at liberty to speak the truth. And the fact is today is that we have to be careful because the same mentality of abuse of power seems to be permeating into the church and people seem to be buying into it. A pastor can't have too much authority or he'll abuse that authority. Well, what's the Bible define as authority? What's the pastor's responsibility? How's the word of God talk about him? Hey, listen, let me ask you a question. If a, dad, if, if a dad expects his children to obey him or to do what he says, is he a dictator? Is a dad a dictator for expecting his children to do what he asks them to do? And someone says, well, if I say that, I know where he's going, so I better be careful. Right? Wait a second. How about this? When you think about it. Let's ask ourselves this. If a mother requires the children to take a bath, understanding there will be consequences if they don't obey, is she a dictator? You're going to have to take a bath, young man. And if you don't, there'll be consequences. Dictator. Is that, is that really what a mom is when she expects her child to take a bath that's actually in his own best interest? Why would a pastor be a dictator simply because he expects the saints to follow his leadership? Why is that? Is that really dictatorship? I just want to give you a little, uh, just a few verses, and you look at them, you look them up on your time. You just look at Hebrews chapter 13 sometime. Read the chapter and find out what your responsibility and role is to your leaders as pastor. I'm not going to even tell you. I'll let God tell you. But I'll say this. There is no doubt that people abuse authority all the time. But let me tell you something. To teach your children not to obey authority for fear that one day someone will abuse that authority in their life, you are setting your children up for failure. You better teach them to do the th things the way God says to do it. To obey the authority. Got to, you just have to look what's going on in our world. How's it working out for us that everybody is anti-authority? Oh, we can't have that authoritarian kind of leadership. It'll destroy us. Well, I don't really see what's going on that's so great now. I mean, I don't know. There seems to be chaos and unrest in our streets all the time anymore. Seems like somebody better step up and say what's right and wrong and what we should be doing and shouldn't be doing. Say, so, well, uh, you're getting political now. Well, you say whatever you want, but it seems pretty biblical to me. It's a biblical principle. Obey the authority. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that we ought to obey the authority of our police officers. They're there as ministers to us. Anybody ever think about that? Don't you obey those police. They'll abuse their authority. Well, the Bible says they have authority if, as long as they're using it for good. And can I tell you, most police officers are trying to use it for good. Most are. Oh, there's always a people who abuse. There are teachers that abuse their authority. There are police officers who abuse their authority. There are dads and moms that abuse their authority. You know what? There, there, are, there are bosses that abuse their authority. There are pastors that abuse their authority. There are CEOs that abuse their authority. There are, are political pundits that abuse their authority and power. I get it, I get it, I get it, I hear it, I hear it, I hear it. But you better teach your children to obey authority or they're going to be in trouble in life. Stahlbuck said, or Starbuck Roger Stahlback said, I faced up to the issue of obedience. 
Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. And can I tell you, that's exactly what we get when we learn to yield to the God-given authority over us. A father and a son arrived in a small western town looking, well, I'll tell you what, I've jumped ahead a little bit. Um, Let me skip on that just for time. All right, so number three, let's talk about the third thing, their allegiance, their allegiance. Another thing that God, how he uses these common people as a tool in his hand is their allegiance. One of the characteristics is allegiance. It's a God, not man mentality. In Acts chapter 5, verse 27, turn there, please. Acts chapter 5, verse 27. Notice what it says here in Acts 5, 27. We're going to move very quick because I want to get this last one in before the end of the night. And so we're not going to take long at all. But notice it says, and when they had brought them, verse 27, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them, saying, did we straightly command you that ye should not teach in his name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Again, what they're trying to do is quiet them, shut their lips, keep them from sharing this truth of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior. You're trying to bring this man's blood upon us? You're trying to act like we're the ones that killed him? It's we're the reason why he hung on Calvary? It's not our fault. He says, you're going to have to stop preaching the resurrected Christ around here. We're sick of it. And they finally said, you know what? You can beat us, and they did. You can throw us in jail, and they did. You could even kill us down the road if you want, and they did. But we got to obey him. Just like Amos said, listen, you think this message is my idea? It's not. I did not, if it was up to me, I'd be kicking back in a lawn chair right now around a nice warm fire. I'd be drinking me a sweet tea and chilling out. But no, God put this in my heart, my mouth, and he told me I got to preach and proclaim the truth, and that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm just doing what God said I got to do, and I got to obey God rather than you. And that's exactly what they said. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln met with a group of ministers for prayer, a prayer breakfast. One of the ministers said, Mr. President, let us pray that God is on our side. Lincoln's response was, no, gentlemen, let us pray that we are on God's side. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a, a, a different mentality. That's a God mentality, not, hey, you serve us, God. No, we serve you. Number four, again, we've addressed this issue and we've been talking about what did they all have in common that made them such effective tools in the hand of God, even though they themselves were common. Their attitude, humility. We saw their actions, obedience. 
their allegiance, God, not man, and finally their approach, their approach. It was real simple what their approach was. Hard work. Hard work. They were hard-working men. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, it says, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work, no device, no knowledge, no wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. Again, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Their approach was hard-working. William Sidney Porter, better known by his pen name, O. Henry, he became one of the most popular authors in America at the turn of the last century. Matter of fact, he wrote for a number of years, but his, uh, his, real, his career really took off in a very unlikely place, prison. He had been convicted of embezzling from the bank in which he worked in Texas. Uh, there were some that claimed that it was carelessness, it wasn't really that he meant to steal the funds, but that he lost the funds through bad management or something. But either way, he was sentenced to five years in prison. And while he was there, he wrote and published some of his best-known stories. He made himself or established himself as one of the premier uh, storytellers and authors in the country. It said that once when he attempted to get a royalty check from a New York publisher without success... He went up to the office trying to collect it in person, only to be told that the person who signed the checks wasn't available because they had sprained an ankle. He said, my dear sir, does he sign with his feet? Does he sign with his feet? You know, when we're trying to avoid doing something we don't want to do, Pretty much any excuse is going to do, right? Rather than looking for reasons to avoid the task by which we've been called to do or asked to do, we should just be faithful and diligent about our work. Most of the time it's harder to get out of the work than it is to simply do it. And Jesus said in John chapter 9, verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. There is a lot of work to be done in Christianity and the world in which we live. And sometimes we spend more time trying to find ways to get out of it than we do just simply doing it and getting it right. So many times in school, children try to get out of doing a lesson or a homework assignment when in reality, they'd be done with it by the time they got through thinking how to get over it. And that's true with us as adults. God calls us to reach a world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He calls us to separate ourselves from a wicked, sinful world. He calls us to live a life in a way that's honoring and glorifying to Him. Let our, the, 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 let the, um, okay, my mind just went blank. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Boy, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. I'm going to tell you what, that takes effort. But these men were hard working. Their approach was, we're going to get the job done. We're not going to let it get dark on us, so to speak, sitting around doing nothing. We're going to work right up to the time we can't work anymore. Hey, Jesus Christ is coming back, and when he does, we'll be taken out. Until then, we've got to stay at the work. There's a lot to be done. Like Amos, who was a simple herdsman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit, God will use you if you possess the proper attitude, actions, allegiance, 
and approach. You know, he's not interested in how popular you may be, how wealthy you are, or talented you may be. But no, he is impressed with your availability. Are you willing? They say availability is the greatest ability. See, God's looking for the humble and hardworking who will be obedient to Him and care more about what He thinks than what others think. Amos, you're a nobody. Who do you think you are coming to our country and telling our king that he's going to die and that the country's going to go into captivity. Who do you think you are? You just go over there to Judah. You get out of here. You're a nobody. You're nothing. I don't know who your family is. I don't know who you are up to this point. You are nothing but trouble, buster. Fellas, listen. Honestly, this isn't my idea. It's all his. I'm just humbled myself before God. I just was willing to be obedient to the one who called me. And honestly, I've got to obey him rather than men. And I'm just going to keep on working till he tells me it's time to quit. May God help us to do the same. And if we'll have that attitude, God will use us too. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for all you do for us and all that you mean to us. And Lord, again, we are desperate for your touch and your leadership in our life. Thank you for the simplicity of your word. God of heaven, help us, Lord, just to be, uh, have the right kind of attitude. We're just common folk. We're just normal people. And Lord, you use the common. Lord, we want you to be glorified. That's what we want. We want you to be exalted. And so, Lord, use us. Lord, may we be that person that's humble. May we be that person who is willing to be obedient. To simply care more about what you think than what the world thinks. And then may we just be hardworking. We'll thank you and praise you, Lord. As we put ourselves in a position and exhibit the characteristics and quality that enable you to use common people like Amos and like us. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed.